You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Sam Franklin, who is a lecturer at the Delft University of Technology in, in the Netherlands, also the author of this book right here called The Cult of Creativity, a surprisingly recent history. Now, now Sam, the subtitle, A Surprisingly Recent History, I think is highlighted by the, the only image in the book, right, which is a, a word gram, right, or a word history of this word creativity. And I was astonished to see that this word more or less didn't appear anywhere until about 1950, and then it just exploded and, and took off, right? And so we're surrounded, we're in a sea of creativity, right? Everyone thinks that creativity is the secret to, to everything, to happiness, to productivity. It's hard to find people who have bad things to say about creativity, although you identified a, a few of them. But it's puzzling because there are similar concepts that people have praised throughout history, is this really just a matter of us changing the terminology, right? I think in the beginning, you explored this idea that there is a continuity, but there's also something new and, and fresh that came on the scene in, in the 1950s. So I guess two-part question, which really is all about the book, is what are some of these alternatives to creativity that preceded creativity? And, and what is it that, that kind of kicked in in 1950 or so that made creativity this thing that everybody uh, wants to identify with. You just asked the central question that I set out to answer so many years ago when I started this project. Yeah, it's striking when you look at that graph, that creativity, which sounds like a timeless concept. If you pick up books on creativity, they will tell you that people have always been creative since man invented the wheel and started painting on caves. And they'll also say that creativity is a, a perennial source of philosophical inquiry. But for whatever reason, that word just doesn't appear, as you said, basically before World War II. And then it just explodes into our lexicon. And as you say, it's all around us. We use it in lots of different ways. We use it in lots of different contexts and education and business and the arts and everywhere. So I think the answer to your question is both. It is true that just because we see the appearance of a new term, it doesn't necessarily mean we have a totally new concept on our hands, right? So people say, what did they call it before? Okay, fair question. There were concepts like imagination, like genius, ingenuity, originality, intelligence, things that mean or could have meant in any given situation something very similar to what we mean by creativity. But I think there are important differences between how those concepts were traditionally used and how we use creativity. And so what I think I argue is that creativity isn't necessarily a totally new concept. It's a new term that allows us to pull together a, a constellation of different um, concepts and connotations and vibes that allow us to say new things. So in that sense, it is kind of a new concept because it's a new handle. So I think what it does is it allows us to name some kind of theoretical attribute that is a, a human attribute. Usually we think of it as 
psychological, basically cited in the individual and in the brain, that is responsible for the generation of novelty, of new ideas, right? And so when you look at, say, standard definitions of creativity that people who specialize in this field put forth at, to differentiate it from things like genius or imagination, is the ability to come up with something new and useful, or sometimes they'll say new and appropriate because, you know, art is not useful. But of course, we paradigmatically consider art creativity, right? But it's more specific than that, right? We don't consider childbirth an act of creativity. We could, but you'd be being a little bit provocative, right? Paradigmatically, we think of um, the arts and we think of technology. And I think that what I found was that the reason that this concept arose when it did after World War II was because a particular cluster of people, a particular sensibility in that era, found it really ideologically and practically useful to have a concept that could name the individual source of art and technology. And there are various reasons for that that we can get into, but that's what made it different. And the other thing I'll just tack on to that is that what made it different from genius, which is a very close concept, is that genius is basically by definition exclusive, right? It, there, not everyone can be a genius. That would be kind of a contradiction in terms, even though you can find books that say, you know, unleashing your inner genius, but we basically mean very exceptional, very gifted people. Creativity is something that can be said to be possessed by anybody. And oftentimes that's said with a sense of, oh, I'm blowing up a myth about creativity. Actually, everyone has it in them to be creative. But what I find is that if you go back to the beginning of people using that term, you find them looking for a concept that can be applied to anybody, a human trait that you could find in a child as well as a, an engineer, as well as a great artist. And that's, I think, the other thing that it does is it ties together acts of great genius with everyday little moments of cleverness, let's say. Yeah, I, I, the thing that struck me was that it seemed to be about democratizing something which was reserved for the few. When people talk about creativity, they'll often talk about Leonardo, right? Or even if you're, say, Schumpeter, right? You'll be talking about these world-changing geniuses who are entrepreneurs and, and so forth, who found big companies or whatever. And this seemed to be all about not just identifying that potentiality in everybody, but also actively trying to promote it and disseminate it, right? So I guess part of it is descriptive and part of it is prescriptive. So part of it is about just simply identifying, right? So you talk about the creativity sciences and the creativity sciences are about describing, identifying in line with psychometrics. But then there's this whole other piece, which is about the cultivation, the education, the eliciting of this attribute, right? That's right. So yes, as you mentioned, and a lot of the book deals with psychologists who starting right in 1950 and, and throughout the 1950s and 60s devoted their work to studying the phenomenon of creativity. And as good scientists, they consider themselves scientists, empiricists, their goal was descriptive. They were just trying to find what happened to be out there. Now, I kind of argue that in doing so, they also kind of invented this concept of creativity, which they instantiated in tests and things like that. And they had a really hard time kind of agreeing on exactly what it was that they were talking about. But they were, they did at least see that their role as just understanding, objectively understanding a natural phenomenon that self-evidently seems to exist. People come up with new stuff. This came against the background, right, of this industry of testing, 
right? So companies, the military in particular, was trying to identify general intelligence. These guys were trying to map over what we did with general intelligence onto this sort of orthogonal or maybe not correlated, maybe correlated alternative um, capacity, which they called creativity. Exactly. So just to zoom out for a little bit, I think that maybe any time you see the arrival of a new term, especially one that ends in ITY, um, which is fun fact, creativeness was actually slightly more common than creativity until the 1950s. Neither were common at all. They were all very kind of ad hoc. But I think the ITY, which is the Latin ending, it suggests how, how this became a scientific concept. And this was largely a, pro, uh, a product of a, of a scientific process of naming and, and then testing for things. But I think when you get one of these terms, it's not just because you're curious about it out of, out of some kind of idle curiosity. It's not to say that no science can be motivated by curiosity, but I think it tends to be a little bit more applied than we give it credit for. And particularly in the case of the field of psychology and psychometrics, whose job it is to produce tests. It's a field that came out of the very practical needs of large organizations over the course of the, the late 19th and early 20th century, government, military, schools, mostly in Europe and the Americas, to select personnel, to select students. And they did so in a scientific way that was befitting a mass society. The number, sheer numbers of cadets, of applicants, of students, of employees in the, during the rise of the large corporation and the large government agencies just necessitated or called into being this field of psychometrics. And so even though they wanted to, the people who studied intelligence, as well as the people who went on to study creativity, they thought they were studying something very that was just out there in the world, they were also kind of instantiating something through the use of tests that could be useful to these organizations. And so after World War II, for reasons that I think are as practical as ideological, there was a, um, a fear that the old paradigm of intelligence was not fit for the new era. So after World War II, for a combination of practical and ideological reasons that, that I can get into. There was a fear that the old ideas about intelligence and that the intelligence tests themselves were not suitable for this new world. The practical reasons was that there was a, a lot of pressure on innovation, perhaps more so in the past, although I think there always had been to some extent. And there was a sense that to, to keep up with the Soviets uh, in the race for technology and to produce more and more novel consumer goods, which would power the economy by which America would stay ahead of the Soviets in, in every way, would require lots of new ideas. And so the, the idea was that we can use intelligence tests to select students, employees, etc. But those are just going to be the really smart people, the, the people who can do math good but not the people who will generate really new ideas. And so we needed a new kind of test befitting this new era of novelty. I think the ideological um, component was that intelligence tests, I think anything that came with a right or wrong answer kind of smacked of conformity. It was associated with this engineering, highly technological mindset, um, where again, you could 
come up with the right or wrong answer to something, but you couldn't really think for yourself. And so these creativity tests and the creativity research came with this ideological favoritism toward the intellectual rebel, toward people who came up with new ideas. Again, paradigmatically, the artist, but most of the people who these tests were actually aimed at identifying were not artists. They were engineers and scientists, largely for the military industrial consumer complex. But they were trying to import some of the ideals that were associated with the nonconformist artist and bohemian. I just wanted to go back to something, and I'll tie it in, that you said earlier at the beginning of that question about that this was a, an attempt to democratize something. I think you're right, but I think it's also, it, it works both ways. So I think you could see creativity as a concept, as a way of democratizing genius. And they very self-consciously, the people who studied this as psychologists, and then the, the people who helped shape that research, who were research directors, managers, essentially, they had a narrative in their head that capitalism had gone through these phases of first being a kind of a wild west of brilliant genius inventor entrepreneurs, your Edison's, your Alexander Graham Bell's, who were then taken over by the managers, which was for a long time considered a really good thing. It rationalized business, that is to say, it made it more rational, more predictable. It was really the only way you could actually scale up capitalism. But a lot of people started to worry in this era following Schumpeter, and William White was a big kind of proponent of, of this fear, was that the managers were killing all the innovation, that, that they could, uh, that they were all basically yes men, and that the, the genius inventor had been made into a salaried employee, and therefore would, would never really be as inventive, and that the whole system of capitalism might actually shut down. Um, and so there was this need to try to re reclaim the, the genius, right? Albeit in a very different world, in a world of large organizations, in a, in a world of thousands and tens of thousands of, of engineers employed in research labs. So creativity, again, as this thing that was like genius, could be said to be the thing possessed by geniuses of the past, but that you could also identify in a rank and file engineer. That was a very practically useful concept to them. Um, but I think it goes the other way too. It, just as it democratizes the idea of genius, I think it also dignifies some smaller and more everyday acts of kind of cleverness and problem solving. And so I think by putting the name creativity, maybe as a partial replacement in many cases for something like ingenuity or just cleverness or just intelligence, I think it imbues that kind of work with, it, with a dignity in its proximity to genius and in its proximity to the arts. Yeah, what I found uh, surprising is the extent to which there was a, a consensus uh, among these folks that the regimentation of American society was comparable in some ways to that of the Soviet Union and that the soullessness of corporate America and domestic life, right? You talk about Betty Friedan. She and Reisman, and there was this whole sense that there was something missing in American life. And if we were to compete against the Russians, we were going to have to do it in a different way. And we we're going to have to cultivate a, a different type of person. Absolutely. Conformity, that was the key word there. Of course, this is right around the same time as the Zimbabwe. This is ash experiments were happening at the same time. Social psychology. Yes. Right. People were concerned about conformity and, and obedience and regimentation, right? Exactly. It's all up and down society 
left, right, center, everybody is worried about conformity for their own kind of reasons. And it becomes this massive scourge. And it's the thing that is seen to be the main kind of characterological aspect of totalitarian societies. That's what got us the Nazis. That's what got us fascism. That's what got us Stalinism is conformity, people falling into line. And this was very reasonably seen as a existential threat to humanity, if that's how you diagnose the problem. And a lot of uh, domestic critics, um, again, both right, left, and center, were saying, this is what we've got on our hands in, in our own country, is a kind of conformity. Now, if you're on the right, you associate it with the New Deal and an overweening state and maybe progressive education in some weird way. If you're on the left, you associate it with consumer capitalism, the Levittown and advertising industry and popular music and just all this stuff that's all the same and it's turning us into all men in gray flannel suits. Now, maybe this was exaggerated, but there were a lot of forces of conformity and there was in the interwar period, I think an ethic, a social ethic, one that I'm quite sensitive to, but uh, sympathetic to, one that kind of said, we all need to come together to, to fight this depression, to fight this war. There was a lot of labor unionism. And I think one of the ways that that manifested itself was in, uh, I think maybe what is called in some non-American countries like the tall poppy syndrome. Don't be too good. Don't be too cool. Don't be different. Don't be weird. And of course, this created a backlash that we most often associate with like the counterculture or the or the beatniks. But it also really took over, you know, American business. There was a lot, all the new management trends that came out of the 1950s and 60s were all about how to create nonconformists, how to allow um, employees to, to be individuals or at least feel individualistic, feel a kind of sense of ownership and dignity for their work and above all, not be conformists. And because it was seen not just as an ideological threat to, to, de to democracy, but as a threat to innovation as well. You said this is the era where brainstorming was invented. I found that fascinating. But you also mentioned that during World War II, because of the need to uh, rapidly innovate, companies and the military kind of created suggestion boxes, right? They, they realized that there might be some ideas that are living in, in the lower levels of the organization. And so rather than just making all the decisions at the top and just sending orders down to the workforce, the idea was that maybe we could tap into some insights from them. And that was sort of the idea behind, behind brainstorming, right? Was casting a wider net when it comes to generating ideas. Yeah, that's right. You could see the, the whole kind of industrial era through the late 19th and early 20th centuries as being one of just progressive de-skilling of workers, the progressive... Taylorism. Taylorism. It's what Harry Braverman called the, the separation of conception from execution, or basically the, the brains from the manufacturing. It's the designed in California, assembled in China kind of dichotomy, right? And management science was an outgrowth of engineering, right? And engineering is essentially the art of taking knowledge that used to be known by workers on the shop floor and turning it into drawings and recipes and machine designs so that those workers can do less and have to know less and have ultimately less autonomy. I'm not saying it's all conspiracy, but that's what it does. Management comes out of engineering and some managers who had this attitude of that we know best and we can logically and rationally make decisions by crunching numbers and doing drawings and laying everything out, sort of had this 
this regret during World War II that they didn't actually know everything that was happening on the line, especially because they were suddenly manufacturing things that they hadn't been manufacturing before for the war. And so, like, as you said, they put suggestion boxes on the floor and they offered some cash rewards in some cases or other kinds of perks for people who had suggestions for how to speed up productivity or how to cut out fat or increase efficiency. And Alex Osborne, who was an advertising executive from Buffalo, he saw these and thought, this is awesome. He loved it. And the reason he loved it is because to him, it was just a testament to the idea that normal people could come up with good ideas. And he went on to have a kind of second act of his career as a idea man, uh, which is to say someone who is out to convince the world that everybody could have ideas and to show them how. And his most lasting product was this practice of brainstorming, which we now know today. And most people are surprised to learn that it was invented at all. It just <laughs> like creativity. It just seems like this thing that's always been with us. But at the time it was a weird- His book is still in print. Yeah. He, he had several books. Applied Imagination is the probably his most famous one, but he had ones called How to Think Up. Your Creative Mind, I think was one. He had several books. And I think it was in How to Think Up, which was written in the 40s that he introduced this brainstorming thing. And yeah, it was kind of very different than business as usual. You'd bring in people from the bottom to the top of the organization, put them all in a room and have them just yell out ideas as quickly as they could. Suspending judgment temporarily was his idea. And then someone, a secretary, would sit in the corner and write down every single idea that, that came up. And you're not allowed to say no. You're not allowed to criticize anyone's ideas. You had to build off of ideas and, and go wild. And then at the end of the meeting, the secretary would hand over this massive list. And they bragged about, as they were popularizing brainstorming, they would brag about how long these lists are. Oh, we generated 375 ideas for the Passaic uh, School District. We generated 260 ideas for how to come up with a new flotation device for, device for airlines, whatever. And then those lists would get passed up to management and they would sort through them and see if any of the ideas were good. It was for him, he believed a very effective method, but it was also just getting back to this ideological dimension. It also really meshed with an era in which people felt the threat of conformity and nobody wanted to be a conformist. And so the idea that everybody could play their little part in being a bit wild and coming up with new ideas was uh, quite attractive. Now, I think the standard test for creativity at the time, I think all this stuff is still around, is the how many uses of a brick you can come up with. That was sort of the standard problem that you would be evaluated on individually. But we don't really have any empirical evidence that suggests that your scores on that test are predictive of anything. And we don't really have any good evidence as to whether brainstorming generates better ideas than alternative ways of generating ideas. It's 50 years later, 70 years later, we still don't really have any good empirical data on the efficacy of these methods or of the the validity of these these tools to predict anything, do we? Yeah, that's my impression from reviewing as much literature as I could. So one of the theories that they developed early on for how to create a creativity test, how to create a test that could predict whether somebody was going to be creative later in their career, which is the whole point of designing a test. 
the concept they came up with was di divergent thinking. And that is, as you said, paradigmatically, it's the brick test. So you show somebody a brick and you ask them to come up with as many different uses for that brick as possible within, say, a minute. And then you count up the number. That's like brainstorming. And then you also judge them based on how unusual they are. So that's usually compared to lists of uh, previous responses that people have given and how useful or appropriate they are. Again, as I said before, the criteria for creativity is usually has something to do with its usefulness or appropriateness. Through these three criteria, more or less, that's how they would judge creativity. And then this kind of battery of tests, I'm oversimplifying a bit. There were some other tests as well, some figure preference tests, some adjective tests, all kinds of a whole suite of tools that psychologists use. But this divergent thinking model was the biggest one because it was the most portable, it was the easiest to replicate and the easiest to do. And those became known as simply creativity tests, even though the people who devised them warned, this isn't really giving us the full picture of creativity. But nonetheless, they hoped that this kind of test might be able to predict future creative achievement. And it, it didn't seem to. The most famous one of these is the Torrance Tests of Creative Thinking, which expands on this brick test and you complete drawings, you complete partial drawings, you name stories, you, there's a figure of verbal one and a figurative one. And they did longitudinal tests on this and it was not conclusively shown that people who did well on these did particularly well in their careers in a creative way or otherwise. But of course, that gets back to this question of what even is creative? How do you define creative success. So that's true. And then in the in terms of the, the business world, the management techniques, brainstorming, that almost immediately came in for, for criticism in the 1950s. There was a study in 1956 or seven by a Yale professor that found that creativity didn't work. And then the creativity people shot back and they said, well, you didn't do the experiment right. And it became this whole controversy. I mean, really, it was in the newspapers, it was the talk of the town in the business world for a little while. And some of the headlines are really funny. They're like, brainstorming challenged, individual reigns supreme. This debate was clearly a proxy for a, a larger debate about individualism versus group work, about it, the individual versus society. But the debate in business seemed to be when you're trying to come up with something new or trying to solve a problem, should you get people together to do it or should you just send people off on their own to do it? And this is a debate that is perennial. It, it goes on to this day. There's people who have methods that are elaborations of brainstorming, that are improvements to brainstorming that they swear are good for group work. And I'm, I'm sure they do serve their purposes quite well, given the right context. And then there's people who just swear that that's no way to do it. I don't think we'll ever resolve it. I think that it's probably all about context. There's another thing I, that I read in the book, which it wasn't the main part of your argument, but it was surprising how these ideas get pushed down into the popular culture. So you mentioned Red Book and, and Reader's Digest, and I had totally forgotten about those periodicals, which were popular reading for middle-class people back in those days. But people would access these debates, and they would change their views of their children and their schools and everything as a result of of reading about this right yeah absolutely there were the, the research was reported on in yeah like you said red book look magazine time life all the kind of major new york times all the major magazines that the weeklies and that everyone would read 
And I think that w one of the big ones was about E. Paul Torrance, the, the guy who devised that Torrance test of creative thinking that I was talking about. And it was about the creative child and it was about education. And it was an article that was nominally just about the research that Torrance was doing into testing third graders about their creativity. But it was getting into these much larger questions of how should we educate our children? And has conformity um, wormed its way into our education system? Is our education system set up for conformity or non-conformity? And this was a debate that I think resonated with a lot of people. If you were a liberal, left liberal person who values free thinking and nonconformity for its ability to challenge the status quo, the idea that education was turning out conformists was a terrible thing. If you were a Cold War hawk who believed that we needed to be achieving leaps and bounds in math and science and technology, this was also a worrying prospect that our children were little conformists. So these quite little scientific questions of can you test a child's creativity turned into big debates that were, or tapped into big debates that people were reading about and debating on a daily basis in America. And I think it meant a lot to them, and especially people who were raising kids, which a lot of people were, this was the baby boom, and they're all wondering, how do I raise my kid? What kind of kid do I raise? What kind of future am I going to be bringing them up in? And someone like Torrance, I think, gave them a very satisfying answer that you can raise someone who's both a true individual, who's self-expressive, who's a whole person, but who also will maybe get a good job someday <laughs> or contribute to the national economy because they're creative. And creativity is something that, that everybody can value. Yeah, it's amazing how fresh these debates are still there and they're still uh, active, right? Where with the importance of standardized tests, you've got kids who are unsuccessful in school, maybe juvenile delinquents who may actually be creative and talented, but they're, they can't find success in, in the mainstream school systems. But this is more than just about unlocking productivity and advancing the cause of greater GDP. This was part of the attempt of psychology to reclaim some of the ground that had been lost to philosophy, right? This was all about positive psychology. The Maslow, of course, is probably the most famous, but his efforts, it seemed, were, were all about trying to turn modern-day psychology into a, a kind of philosophy of well-being. Absolutely. Yep. So it was, to some extent, about GDP. But as you mentioned, if it was only about that, it would have been something else. We'd be talking about inventiveness or something. Yeah, it was about the idea that this is there's not a trade-off here, right? So it's not a trade-off between self-actualization and productivity and national strength, but rather these two things can be shown to be in harmony. That was the idea. Exactly. That was the hope, right? Not everyone believed that could be done, but these people who focused on creativity, I think, did. And I'm glad you brought up Maslow. So... The psychologists we've been talking about so far, we haven't really named them, but they include people like J.P. Guilford, Calvin Taylor. Those are the psychometricians. Those are the Torrance. Those are the people who are doing the tests. But there's this other kind of branch of psychology coming out of psychoanalysis at the time that we now think of as humanistic psychology. So Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, Rollo May, some others, and a, a guy named Frank Barron, who I think sits interestingly in the middle. 
they also take up this theme of creativity in a very different way. They're not trying to predict who's going to be creative and who's not going to be creative. They believe that everybody should be creative if the circumstances of society were good. Um, and that creativity is the true human impulse and the highest, let's say, moment in the hierarchy of needs. Now, interestingly, Maslow comes to the theme of creativity after the psychometricians got there. I've heard him being referred to as like the father of creativity or something, but he actually was playing catch up because he's seeing all this psychometric research going on, all these people trying to count creativity and, and quantify it. And he's saying, you can't quantify something like creativity. It's this kind of almost magical thing that exists in all of us. And it is the, it is something that happens when you are self-actualized. That was his main concept. That was one of the key concepts of humanistic psychology. And so these two perspectives as creativity, as a cognitive ability and creativity as this natural human process, they are in many ways at odds, but I do think they combine in an interesting way. Cause I think even to this day, we kind of see it as both of those things, right? <laughs> we still read articles about our creativity's lagging or how can you be more creative or here's 10 tips to improve your creativity. But we also, when we hear the word, we think of inner flourishing and inner drives and self-expression. And, and when we want a creative job, it's often because it's something that we think is going to allow us to become our, our truest selves, um, but also make a living creating economically valuable novelty. So I think, as you said, it was this thing that allowed people to have it both ways, to see economic and psychological goods as being aligned. Yeah, you certainly see that survive in my business school students, of course. They don't see there being a trade-off or a conflict. Steve Jobs, what in his commencement address in 2005, told everybody, do what you love, do what makes you passionate, and so forth. And I think everyone expects to get rich in the process, right? <laughs> and, and add value. But it seems like this is something which the folks in, in the liberal arts should support. But you point out that a lot of the criticism of this whole creativity science came from folks in the liberal arts. You'd think they would want to import notions of arts into sciences and, and so forth. So wh why did they find this problematic? It's complicated. So I should start by saying some of them were critics, especially of, of brainstorming. And I can, I'll talk about that a little bit. But a lot of them also did feel intuitively when these creativity conferences started popping up that they also, this was also their cause, that they should have something to say about this, that philosophers and, and art historians and uh, literature professors should have something to say naturally about creativity. Because after all, what do they study? They study the history of people being creative. And I think that the ideal of creativity um, it certainly suffuses a lot of art discourse. We often think of modernism going back a hundred plus years as being all about, you know, make it new, all about novelty, all about creativity. I think that's a bit overstated as some good scholarship has shown. Art is very rarely about novelty itself. However, novelty and, and being formally innovative has been of value in that world. Um, so I think that when people started talking about creativity, again, led by this kind of psychology management nexus, a lot of people in the liberal arts did get on board. The people who were really skeptical were professors that Alex Osborne reached out to, the inventor of brainstorming. His mission in life, 
He started a, a foundation in 1953 called the Creative Education Foundation. And its goal was to get creative education, as he called it, into every school in America, from the primary, secondary, um, all the way up. And he did this by writing letters and to professors. He had some luck in certain areas. He had pretty good luck in engineering schools. He had some good luck in at uh, marketing and communication schools. Uh, he did not have good luck in liberal arts, and he could not figure out why. He thought, I don't understand why these professors wouldn't want to teach their students the ability to be creative. And my interpretation is simply that they were sitting there thinking, brainstorming, this is not our kind of creativity. Our kind of creativity, the kind of creativity we study, is people who devoted entire lifetimes to learning the craft of writing and then did it for a really long time and then came up with some incredible novel or play or movie or they weren't really studying movies yet at that time but that was the kind of creativity that they were interested in and that was a very different kind of creativity than brainstorming which basically generates a lot of things that fit onto one line like slogans which is something that creativity that uh, brainstorming was good for so i think it was a fascinating little moment his correspondence with these liberal arts professors where you really get a fundamental misunderstanding about what the meaning of creativity is. Is it the best and finest that, that we've produced, like one definition of, of culture? Or is it just kind of people coming up with good ideas? And I think those are two very different things, but Alex Osborne wanted to see them as both the same. And I think this is a pattern that persists in the creativity literature to this day. A lot of more popular creativity books that you get, that you'll find in airports and in libraries in the business section and bookstores in the business section, they will all start with, as you said earlier, some reference to Da Vinci, some reference to Einstein, some reference to Picasso, and then some reference to Steve Jobs, and then some reference to the Swiffer or Pringles or some kind of more, let's say, pedestrian innovation that nonetheless has had a major impact in the world and made somebody a lot of money. So there's this way in which the, the creativity genre, it likes to bring together all of these things that we think of as, as great artistic genius and things that we think of as technology and things that we think of as, as everyday problem solving. Even you can use creative thinking to improve your marriage or to improve your relationship with your kids or to whatever it is, even if you're, whether you're an HR or a graphic designer or, or a teacher or whatever, you can use creativity to improve your life and achieve greater success and happiness. I think there's something deliberate there in that smashing together of all of these things. It dignifies those little everyday things that we all have to do. But at the same time, I think it really misunderstands what actually goes into uh, works of great genius. It's not just, I don't think Shakespeare was sitting around brainstorming. I don't think that's how he created the sonnets. It's such an optimistic philosophy, right? It's it's almost like it had to be invented in America because it's so optimistic about our capacities to achieve our goals. But there was a, another type of critique, and that was the folks who wanted to remind everybody about the perspiration aspect as opposed to the inspiration aspect, right? I guess it was Thomas Edison that said 99% perspiration. So there, there were folks who were concerned, and perhaps they were mischaracterizing the the view of most of the creativity folks, but 
they, they would say, Hey, what we want are hard workers. What we want are disciplined people. And so there are a lot of people who are, who are critiquing this because they thought that this was just letting the long hairs take over, right? Yeah. You don't find many of them, but when you do find them, it's very telling uh, because it does show the eclipse of maybe what had been a kind of consensus in, in, in our attitudes toward work and toward what kind of worker you should be. I think you could see that now I'm going to sound like a kind of crotchety old conservative from the 1950s, but you could see it as a kind of eclipse of the work ethic in a way that it's, um, it's all about just the ideas in your head. Yeah. Come in with your ping pong and your foosball. And if you, if you look at what Facebook and Google were doing to recruit workers in the last 20 years or so, they would emphasize the, the, the fun aspects of the job and kind of downplay the, the long hours and the, the difficult work. Absolutely. And even when you, so there's a couple of things there. So one thing is that when you see creativity as something that you can stimulate through certain kind of methods, again, those methods might work for some people, but it, it puts your focus on the idea generation as the main problem as opposed to the kind of execution, elaboration, and just like making it work as the problem. And I think most people who do even things that are considered creative work know that a lot of the work is actually just kind of toil. And there's moments of decision-making and there's moments of what you might call looking for ideas. And you can have writer's block and stuff like that. But most of the actual work is the having your butt in the chair. So I think that the fact that there's a kind of a market in all of us for the idea that you could use a certain method or use certain knowledge to just magically come up with something good, so come up with a good idea. It's really appealing because it, it doesn't really imply hard work. There's this other kind of thing, which is that the culture of creativity is, as you said, it's very playful. And this comes a lot of this stuff comes out of the psychological research that I looked at, which shows that creative people are, they, wor they work hard, but that's not, the, that's not the findings that they really focused on. The findings that they focused on were that they were very passionate about their work, that they didn't feel like they were working when they were working. They were very involved. Intrinsic motivation, that's the key, that's the key word. Well, it's a very challenging notion for, if you're a manager, because how do you intrinsically motivate, how do you get someone to be intrinsically motivated about uh, an ad campaign that they might not care about or intrinsically motivated about your quarterly report or whatever? Um, however, it, it suggests that you can create a certain kind of work environment that in imitating the studio of an artist, say, by being open plan and exposed brick, and by also replicating the kind of ways that so-called creative workers tend to work, which is odd hours, they may take a walk, they may play a game, and then that's when they come up with that idea. That if you can do this in any kind of environment, any kind of business, you may, you may get more innovation and you also might just get happier employees because they feel like they're being creative. And when you do talk about long working hours, which only occasionally happens, it's usually <laughs> presented as, again, something that's part of the creative lifestyle. Painters, they're always up all hours of the night in their garrets painting by candlelight. 
you got to go when the idea strikes you, even if it's in the middle of the night. Sometimes I'll get up at 3 a.m. and I'll just go to my computer and I'll write down an idea because that's what's happening. Well, I've experienced that. That's, that. There's a truth to that. But I think it also has been used to justify a lot of exploitation, essentially. A lot of people staying up all night to finish a project and they're being told that it's because they're passionate about it. And it's really just because they weren't allowed to go home at five and they don't have a union to make sure that they have to do that. I think these notions of creativity, I think they're used to justify a lot of things. And I think they were in many ways, the idea of creativity has been one of the kind of ideological ways that we've become comfortable with, let's say, neoliberal capitalism, with the erosion of some of the things that we tend to think of as being boring and stagnant and confining like clocking in and clocking out, like regular hours, like uh, having a regular employee. And there's no reason that employment has to look like that. But I think that's one of the things that it's done. Yeah, it's it's hard to glamorize something without simultaneously downgrading something, right? When, when we create this cult of creativity, you call it the spirit of our time, where we heap praise upon these uh, creative individuals with the big ideas. Here at Berkeley, we have the big idea contest and, and so forth. What does that mean for people that aren't doing this? I mean, you know, you talk about how during the pandemic, we gained a greater appreciation for so-called essential workers. Most people aren't creating big ideas. Most people are doing the dirty work of execution and, and keeping the trains running on time. Are we necessarily negatively valuing those kinds of jobs by heaping praise upon the more creative jobs? I think we often are. We don't have to be. I think you can talk about creativity in a way that is sensitive to that, but it's not usually done. I think that when you are encouraging everybody to be, there's almost something antisocial about the creativity discourse. The enemy is always some kind of, is everybody else. It's the opinions. Don't listen to other people. Do your own thing. Be kind of better and have a better idea than other people rage against the status quo. Those are things I can agree with in the abstract, but the status quo that it tends to be raging against is just like last year's fashion trends or whatever business practice was happening last year. So I think it, um, this is getting a little off topic, but it, it does also kind of underwrite a lot of the disruptive move fast and break things kind of attitude. But I also do think that what it does is when we value creativity and when we tell people that you're not really being you can't really be happy unless you're being creative. Um, it sets a different kind of expectation for people in terms of what careers they choose, in terms of what subjects in school they think they might enjoy. And I'm surprised to find myself coming to the, as someone who always thought of myself as creative <laughs> and is, tends to be more sympathetic toward the arts than the STEM fields. I find myself coming to the defense of people who find certain kinds of rote repetitive, detail-oriented, uncreative work satisfying because they don't necessarily have a language for explaining why that's satisfying to them. And they feel like they have to defend it. Oh, I'm not creative. I, I'm not creative. They feel like that's a bad thing. And I feel like just descriptively, some of the most important work and some of the work that just has to be done is like that. But I also feel in here, I'm, I guess I'm channeling maybe the sentiments of someone like Richard Sennett, who looks back to craft as something that is creative only in a very vague sense that you are creating something, but is mostly about a job well done. 
and about seeing something through to the end and about laboring and obsessing over details and also about a certain kind of manual work that we weirdly don't really associate with creativity. We see creativity as a, a psychological thing, something that happens in the realm of brain work. And so I think that when we say that we should all be teaching our kids creativity, we maybe that could be a good thing. It could result in educational policies that I like, but what it also does is it expects all of those kids to go on and be entrepreneurs and tech people. And I, I don't necessarily think that's what we should be training our kids from, not because I want them all to be working in factories, but because I think that's not the role that education should serve. Yeah. I recently had a deck put on my house a couple of years ago and, and the guy who did it was an interesting guy. He was a philosophy major who, who decided, and he was a honor student and he decided to become a, a bricklayer, <laughs> stonemason. And it was remarkable. And I, I sort of asked him like, why did you go into this? And he said that the satisfaction that he got from building walls and laying brick was one that was very creative. And so I, I think perhaps we don't see the creativity in those sorts of jobs. And one good thing about this creativity movement is that it is encourages us to find the creativity in those jobs. Well, I think it's actually going back to an older sense of the term creative. So one of my favorite things, I think you'll like this. I opened up an old economics textbook from, I think, the 20s. It defined a bunch of jobs as creative in a bunch of uh, sectors as creative industries. And what was included in that was farming, manufacturing, retail. Basically, the only things that weren't in the creative industries were was banking and finance. Because according to this economics writer, those were essentially parasitic and didn't actually add value to the economy. They didn't create anything. My finance students would totally disagree. They're like, we created credit default swaps and, and we created these CDOs and CDO squared and crypto and tokens and whatever. Lots of very innovative products indeed. No, you know, I mean, I think one thing you could say is that it facilitates things, but it's just, my, my point is really that the meaning of the word creative in that time before this whole period that we're talking about in the 50s, the invention of creativity as a trait the word creative didn't necessarily have to do with a kind of mental attribute or a personality trait. It was to be generative. It was to be productive um, in a very kind of descriptive sense. And that's what that word meant. Now, because of the invention of a trait called creativity that happened in the 50s and 60s and continues to our own day, we now talk about creative in a different way. Now, if you say something is a creative industry, it's something that has to do with the arts, it's arts, arts adjacent, it's design, it's architecture, it's video game design, it's something that has kind of image, it's content creation, it's kind of all up and down from gallery art to apps. But it's not about it being particularly generative, it's creative because we associate that kind of stuff with a certain kind of way of doing things and a certain kind of cognitive attributes and personality attributes that we call creativity. And so I think that e even when, when people like William Morris or people used the term creative in relation to work, creative work, yes, they were talking about work that actually produced something. This was the tragedy of alienation in the Marxian sense that it, everyone only did one little thing in a factory and didn't see a project through. So they, so they never really had the chance to, to have made something. So that, that actual process of having made a thing is the core of creativity. It's not about 
the novelty. It's not about the ideas. It's not about being innovative or entrepreneurial or going against the grain or thinking outside of the box or being weird. It's just about making the thing. That's what's creative about that kind of creative work. And so we'd have to rewind a lot of um, our conceptions of what it means to be creative to get back there. But I do think that could be a useful thing to do. Yeah. And it's interesting. Gender comes up in the book in a couple of places. And if you use that broader definition of, of creativity, it's hard to think of anything more creative than creating a human being and and, and shaping them uh, through child rearing and managing a household certainly could be seen as creative. But what I found interesting is in the 1950s, they talked about how men were the creative ones and women were detail oriented. I love this. They're the ones that do filing and typing. They don't have creativity. But then you fast forward about 15 years and folks were talking about how these men, they needed to tap into their feminine side because that's where the, the creativity was. The, the discussion of gender seemed to be all over the map. Yeah, absolutely. It's what you'd expect in many ways that indeed in that early period, people were defining creativity. And, and so when you have to study someone who's creative, you have to pick someone who you already believe is creative. And that tended to be men because men were the people with access to careers that were considered creative, like architecture or whatever. And women, to the extent that they were involved in the workplace, were, as you said, doing the most menial detail-oriented stuff, they were very rarely given the kind of promotions that would allow them to have any degree of autonomy or decision-making. And so you could read, people did read back into that a kind of natural order that, oh, this means women are detail-oriented and they're cut out for this kind of work. And men, that's the reason that they're in the C-suite or that they're writing uh, copy is because men are creative. This is an old idea that's debated through the course of Western thought, um, but it mostly comes down on the side of men are, only men can be geniuses, that men have a, a seminal ability, as it were, and women are vessels, basically. There's a long tradition that's used to justify women's subordinate position, but as things were changing in the, especially in the early 60s, the, the idea of creativity opens itself up to new interpretations. Now, the thing you were referring to, I think, was Maslow saying that for a man to be creative, he needs to get in touch with his feminine side, which is a fascinating thing. It has to do with his whole idea of gender, which is a whole other topic and really interesting. But notice he's not saying women can be creative by accessing their masculine side or women can be creative full stop. He's still talking about men because men are the ones that we're talking about here. They're the ones who are in the workforce. They're the ones who are worried about not being creative enough. But Maslow will also say things like, well, keeping a home, as he said, can be very creative. Cooking can be very creative. He is eager to extend this dignity of creativity to everyone, including women and many women, including Betty Friedan, who reads a lot of Maslow, embraces that and says, yes, that is the thing that makes us equal to men is that we are as creative. And she had been creative in a kind of traditional hegemonic sense of she'd been a journalist and she'd also been involved in labor politics. And so she had a kind of quote unquote creative career to some extent. And so that's how she also in a way that was implicitly demeaning to domestic labor. She wasn't saying domestic labor is creative. And so we should be happy with that. Some people were saying that Phyllis Schlafly was saying that. Betty Friedan is saying, because we're creative, that is on that basis that we deserve access to the world of work, which is where creativity happens. And so she was inheriting some of the assumptions about what creativity meant 
from the the male discourse and just making her claims to feminism on those grounds. I think from that point on, it is a, it's a very adaptive concept. I think there are studies that show men are more creative. There's studies that show women are more creative. I think there's probably an argument to be made in a way that the concept of creativity tracks to a certain extent onto the feminization of the American workplace and the rise of education and other traditionally female-dominated areas in, to become more central to our national economy. The culture industries were a place that were early on more amenable to women. So I think it's too, as you say, it's all over the map, but it's something that people can map whatever they want onto. Well, look, for those of us who are teaching or studying design thinking, which is the term that we all use now in, in engineering schools and, and business schools, this is a really illuminating history, which uh, shows us the origins of this way of thinking, which we now sort of take for granted, and which is pervasive in, in our culture and in businesses. The book is called The Cult of Creativity. Sam, th thanks so much for joining me. Hope to talk again soon. Thank you, Greg. It's been fun. I'd love to. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.